Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Vocal Distance, who is very active on the Twitter, creating threads that break down woke orthodoxy. This is our second conversation, and I highly recommend you listen to our first conversation, which is located down in the description, because that first conversation, he explains what postmodern wokeness is, where it comes from, how it operates. And in this particular conversation, I kind of push back against him and we try to figure out where to go next. And we try to map out what is post postmodernism, what happens after the woke, or how do we move from a position of criticizing the woke to something more positive. So that's basically the parameters of this conversation. You will have a good time, I promise you. If you don't, it's probably because you're too postmodern to really get our drift. I'm kidding. I'm going to get out of the way. Here's me and Wokel. Uh, so I'm just going to click that. Ooh. Hello. Wow. What are you wearing? Oh, once. Yeah, I, I have to. <laughs> You're such a fucking Jedi. <laughs> hey, the aesthetic I'm going for is like profit coming out of the woods more than I anything else right okay so I think and is that reflected in your life philosophy you're like you're always like walking out of the woods every every chance you get there is a ton of people who are I'm in a suit blue check sphere of of the managerial class right okay. who are doing yeah. their thing right and who are um giving off that vibe and setting that tone and for me to do what i'm gonna do and for me to get my message across it's almost gonna be more useful for me to adopt the countenance mannerisms of an artist or a prophet okay like the uh you are very obi-wan well yeah and why is it necessary for the prophet to be removed from the lands of man. Why, why do we have a vision of a prophet on a mountain or in the forest and then coming back to humanity? Because you don't get to get a kind of prophetic vision and the kind of clarity that's needed to have a prophetic vision with inside the confines of a typical normal so- social situation. You're just not built that way. It's for the, it's, look, if you want to do the prophetic thing, you've got to pull yourself out in the same way that if you want to write a math test, you can't do that in the middle of, I don't know, a football game. There's too much going on in a football game. You can't focus. Well, if you're going to get a prophetic vision for the city or for the town or for the, the country, man, you got to get yourself outside of the regular society so that you're not looking at things in that way, so that you're open to a new way of thinking, so that that, that constant reinforcement that you're getting from when looking around is not there, that you're not – that the influence of other people is not there, right? You've got to pull yourself back out. You know, Jordan Peterson's coming out with a new book, and uh... – 
Beyond Order, twelve rules for life. Yeah, I did a I did a, a mini thread on that. Beyond Order is the quintessence or quintessential postmodern statement. That is thoroughly you can't get more postmodern than yes, I can. Beyond Order. No. Yeah, I can no, just say or no, no, sure you can. You just if you construe order as being the very first thing you do, and then you have to move to the second stage. Yeah, order order is the organizational thing. Okay, now that we're organized, now what? If you would construe it like that, which is what I think he means, he's not being oh, postmodern. Okay, so so there's there's two ways to interpret it. One is to uh, go outside, uh, and that's the postmodern part. Wait, the two ways or there's the multiple second ways way? to interpret it, right? Yeah, that's yeah. the product of postmodernism, right? Yeah. There's always multiple ways to interpret everything, but in and of himself, I don't think he's got a postmodern meaning. Well, I don't think I don't think he's. Open. I think he's just saying. It's we have to go beyond order now. We can't just content ourselves with having an organizational structure. We got to have something else to it now. Now that we've got our life in order, what's next? Yeah. Okay. Let's map out postmodernism. I, we we did that in our previous interview, which people yeah. should uh, map uh, you know look at. But postmodernism isn't necessarily a negative thing. People always accuse me of criticizing postmodernists, but I am a postmodernist, and I said I've never claimed to not be a postmodernist. I am a postmodernist, thoroughly. So I don't think it's a negative thing, but I think that there's kind when, of a when negative you say you're a postmodernist, thing. what do you mean by that? Well, like I mean that. Every, everything, all knowledge is uh, basically a bunch of Legos, and the task of an intellectual or a thinker is to test these different assemblances of thoughts into different structures. Okay. Like uh, The deconstructive uh, lens is just one way of reassembling order, of seeing how you can disassemble things to oh. assemble things. I don't know. I would say, like, I mean, imagine if I took a rose and I just laid out the petals beside each other, all in a straight line. That would be kind of an ordered way of doing it. And then I put the stem underneath, and that would be an ordered way of doing it, but it would die. So I'm not sure that you can just deconstruct anything and have it reassembled in any old way and have it still live. So your vision, and I'll put this on the screen, your vision of chaos is the deconstruction of order. I think there's, there's no exacting any sort of form from a previous structure. You can't take a little bit I, of Islam, a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Taoism, and create something living. So let's talk a little bit about Derrida. Derrida was post-structuralist, and what Derrida meant by that is that there is no center to things. Now, to understand what he means by that, um, the structuralists thought there was a structure to language, right, and that... All languages across all cultures would have, at some level, deep within them, a common structure that would have been universal. Derrida says no. There is no necessary structure. There is no universal structure. There is n- there's none of that. You, all languages are uh, is just a swirl of, of words that are defined by their relationship to other words. And... Those words um, are 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 highly contextual. Um, yeah. So the context in which a word is said gets its meaning from its relationship to other words, how it's used, all of that, right? And there's no universal invariant structure to language that allows us to look at any particular text and pull out a, a singular common meaning, right? But that doesn't Derrida, mean that there's no meaning. It could be meant that there's infinite meanings. <clears throat> 
it, it Derrida would have said that there is as many meanings as there are interpreters. Yeah. Right? And so there's no objective meaning. It's just... Well, is there a confluence of interpretation? People agreeing on what a text is and then acting according to that agreement? Such as Derrida building Western say, society? Derrida would have said that all, all that there is is the discourse. Right? Um, that's it. Mm-hmm. And the issue that you end up with is that is as the meme I just sent you just shows, is that um, y- y- you can reinterpret stuff and you can get it reinterpreted in a way that you might say, well, this is a perfectly legitimate interpretation, and miss out something on that. Once, I mean, imagine if you de- once you deconstruct the pine needle in that way, once you deconstruct the tree in the way that I just sent to you there, it dies. If you deconstruct everything, it dies. Once you deconstruct everything, you rip it apart. Life is not Legos. But language is Legos. Language is a recursive system where you can put words together infinitely and still gain traction in somebody else's mind. You can yeah, still do that. The, that's true. But what Derrida would have said is that the meaning from the text comes from the interpretation of the text and you're in being in dialogue with the text. He ignores the intent of the author. He says that the author is dead, right? That's Roland Barth. Yeah. The author yeah. is the author is dead. So what the author the author does not get to decide what his work means. And I think that's also wrong. To if we want to if we want to do some serious philosophy of language, we might take a look at John Searle's idea about intention and say, look, for language has intentionality. That means it's about something. It has meaning, right? Mm-hmm. That's uh, in in philosophy. For those of, of you who are maybe unaware, we don't just mean intention in the regular everyday in the sense of, I intend to go to the movies today. We mean intention to mean ofness or aboutness. It's about something. Yeah. And, uh, um, and that Searle aboutness is, comes not from the language, but from the use of language. It's not a semiotic property. It's a semantic property of somebody in time, in relationship to another right. person, relating to the world or relating to one another. That is correct. The you don't get meaning for, purely from syntax. It yeah. has to come semantically, and that comes from the minds of human beings, which means that guess what? Um, that texture reading had an intention in the way that it was put together, and that intention is contrary to what Derrida says. Part of the organizing principle of the text. Mm-hmm. But, Derrida says it's not, but he's wrong about that. Derrida would say that the the text that no text has any any center. Like he he completely pulls that out and says no. I mean, you could think of it like you could think of his view as being kind of like illustrated by the idea of like a postcard. Suppose you find a postcard lying on the ground. You don't know who it's from. You don't know who it's to. You pick it up. You read it. You make sense of it. And Derrida says, look, see, you don't need to know anything about the author or the recipient. You can just pick it up and read it and make meaning from it. Look at that. See, no author intended. Mm, but you're gleaning the intentions of the author from what he wrote. Okay. But and so, why is that – meaning? Where does that idea end? Or I guess one of the arguments that we've explored is that that is influencing this huge critical theory and all these other schools of thought, from feminism to gender ideology to uh, critical race theory. But that doesn't mean that that 
that is the defining principle of postmodernism. Postmodernism is that we are in a time where there's a there's a, all these different cultures coming together, and not necessarily they're all valid, but some are better than others. But you can still, as a human being, in your assemblance of yourself, start to pull all these ideas together and create something coherent out of all these other different roots, all these other different. Well, now, well, now that we're here, let me just say. I, I guess my main interest is to let everyone know, um, since we've been dancing around it a little bit, we are through the modern age. The modern age is, is gone. The modern age is over. Modernism has come to an end. We are now in the age of postmodernism. And that means that we are no longer in the age of the Enlightenment. That has has passed. We are in the age of the post of, of postmodernism. We are in the postmodern epoch where postmodern ideas thinking the postmodern vision of people uh, holds sway in public life and in our institutions. That That is my contention. Um, but my contention is that that is not entirely negative, that there's a negative and a positive way of, of dealing with that or of, of maximizing that. In food, like look at look at food, like all these different cultures. You, you think of Thai food as being spicy, but they weren't spicy until they got they they imported chilies from South America, right? So th- this confluence of traditions. You look at music. You can have classical and R and B coming together, right? You can have these mel- mm-hmm. uh, these melanges, if I'm pronouncing that right. That is postmodernism. Right. Well, um, I, I think no. Okay. I don't think that's necessarily that's not what post that might be there might be a a, a part of of the mixing uh, uh unmatching of various foods and various arts that is postmodern in in a way in in the artistic sense um but that's not what I'm talking about I'm talking about for we're talking about philosophical postmodernism I'm and, talking and about your contention is philosophical it's only negative it's always going to be nihilistic there is no I'm center. saying that at the heart of postmodernism, there is a nihilism because it's cent- it, the universe is a centerless flux. Hmm. And knowledge is intimately connected with power. And for that reason, objective truth is, is, does not hold sway. Now, I'm going to get some flack from a lot of the postmoderns for saying that. Um, but I think that's the age we're living in. I think we're living in the age of narrative. It's the age of story. Mm-hmm. I think we're living in the age where what matters is who tells the most compelling story using whichever facts they have decided are relevant and germane to the situation. That's the era I think we're living in. And I'll do you one better. My, I did a thread on this. The Kenosha shooting is the perfect example. You could watch two different narratives of what happened build in real time. You watch them put together. You can see how the same video and the same audio and the same clips get cut up, washed of context, and then reassembled into the narrative that people want to see. And that is the age that we are living in. I don't think that I, – I, while I agree with you with the step that we are in the age of narrative, those narratives only become real and once they're ratified. And they're ratified in the agreement of the audience. Once people agree to see things in a certain way, that creates reality out of those different narratives. The narrative in and itself is not in flux. It comes down to, to the force of, of the people behind it. Oh, but but I would say I would say two things about that. First off, that fits 
with what I'm saying that we're living in postmodernism because the narratives are built on the agreement of people, not on truth. The, the Unless the people who agree with it agree on truth, right? Sure, people could. This is not the point, though. Um, the greater and larger point here is that the there is no institution that properly has social legitimation capacity that is not politicized. We don't have any group. Every group is seen. We... we the people view the world through a postmodern cynicism. There is a cynicism inherent in postmodernism that looks at the at, at everyone else making decisions based upon power and based upon their own internal self-interest. And so every every decision, every time somebody makes a claim, um, the, there's the ever-present cynicism. Say, well, you're just saying that for this, or you're just trying to get that, or what's your angle, or what are you trying to do? And this exists in all of our institutions. I mean, part of the, you can see this in the COVID lockdown, right, where there was. We, everyone was told to stay home, right? But when Black Lives Matter protested, they were giving an exemption, and it was like, mm-hmm. well, hold on. Why? What, what, what is the purpose of the exemption, and, and on what grounds is that exemption granted? And it turns out that a lot of people are saying, hey, wait a second. If you're willing to grant exemptions to people based upon political agreement, then I guess your whole enterprise is just politics all the way down. Why should I trust your institution? Why should I believe that your institution is geared toward truth and not towards, say, your political ideology or self-interest? This view has been taken up on all sides now. It's no longer just the cynical Foucauldian postmodernists who are saying everything is about power. You see this, this idea cropping up in nearly everything where somebody will make a very careful argument for a particular economic principle and someone says, you're just serving the interests of the corporations. Someone else will come along and say, um, make a different uh, argument. So, no, you're just uh, um, in the pocket of globalists. And so everything becomes about what is that person's angle? What are they trying to accomplish? And so the narratives that are being built and put together are narratives that are meant to live, survive, and thrive in a time where truth is not agreed upon and is not considered to be objective. So what ends up happening is you end up with a situation where, um, and and there's two elements to this. Um, One is that that on an individual level, people, if you ask them, do you believe in truth, they'll say yes. And then you ask them what they mean by that, and they begin to get a little shaky. But they would still, on some level, try to describe something like um, knowledge about the way the world is. On some level, most of them would. But once we, we get up into the level of social legitimation, we don't have any institution at all which which allows which can socially legitimate truth in a way that is accepted by the majority or even a plurality of people so the people who say for example the scientists who are urging for a covid lockdown um there's a massive amount of conservatives and a massive amount of people who are i would say populist conservatives who would say no 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 
Gavin Newsom's not locking down. Gavin Newsom's going out for lunch with people. We see the governor of New Jersey going out for lunch with his family. We see all these people going out for lunch with all these different other groups of people. We see the Black Lives Matter protests being attended by doctors and nurses. I'm sorry, but you guys don't mean this. What you're doing is having a lockdown of us. You're locking us down so that that you can go and do what you want. Mm -hmm. You're making us bear the brunt for what you want. You're locking down our businesses to shut them down so that the larger businesses who can afford to keep going can can suck up all that extra all that extra market share when the market reopens. That's what you're doing. And so what you end up with is a situation where trust is completely gone. Everything is is fragmented in a way that's almost mm. fractal. Right? I don't know. I, I think Every- that people eventually you know, coagulate around positions, which is what we have tribalism. And in a way, tribalism does save us from infinite flux because we end up agreeing with people that we like or agree with people who already agree with us. And we kind of glom on and you find these, um, these, uh, these poles, these attractors within these different groups that kind of uh, a lot of people like circle around different personalities have different, uh, you know, uh, prominence in articulating these different thoughts. But we still eventually kind of gravitate into these tribes. And then over time, over that over time, skepticism or cynicism can't uh, it, it exhausts itself and reality catches up with us. And there might be mistakes in decision making and decision making is always going to be the best guess. But over time, reality will catch up to to any given narrative. And then the oh. next narrative will have to be based on the, how the past nar- narratives uh, you know, shook out. I, maybe. I, I tend to think that, that, again, how do I put this? I don't think that the cynicism exhausts itself. I mean, we still have people who make very, very passionate arguments that communism hasn't been tried yet. And are those, I, are I, those people m- marginal? Are those um, people not marginal? And are they not eventually marginalized? Um, we have... You know, I don't, I don't know. There's massive numbers, and as particularly in the academy of people... Um, I think it's something like 12% or 15% of of professors in the humanities are either socialists or Marxists, and we know that this doesn't work. I mean, it's been tried. Everywhere it's been tried, it's been an utter disaster. They're going to hate me for saying that. Um, and, and like, I mean, it's stuff that we just know doesn't work. But, and yet but, it still gets tried. But there's – and that's not – it's not just on – on the political left, um, the laissez-faire capitalist markets don't work either. You can't have free-for-all yet. We've got tons of Randians running around, so I don't know that it exhausts itself. But I'll do you one better. That we are living in a fragmented society that's completely fragmented by tribalism um, is not something that just gets hmm. – the cynicism doesn't exhaust itself. It, fra- it just it – just, keeps fragmenting and, and continues to dissolve. The, I don't the very think fact that, it, that you said that we're in a tribal society means that it's not completely fragmented. It might be fragmented, up, but not completely because there are still tribes. I'm saying that eventually it exhausts itself. People have to uh, find some level of agreement, whether that circle's small or rather large. 
and then it, it coagulates back in itself. It's like a, a lava, like a, a lava can, a lava light, lava lamp. When it's cold, yeah. it it goes into all these different pieces. But once it warms up, it has to kind of glob into you know, a few pieces and stuff. That's just the nature of the beast. And I think focusing on that fragmentation does give us a view of postmodernism, but I don't think postmodernism in and of itself is always negative, always nihilistic. It's just showing that there are different ways of assembling things. There's different ways of, of things plugging into one another. So maybe we'll go about it this way. It's, it's entirely one thing for us to deconstruct, um, a movie and then reassemble it. If I want to take a, a two hours of, of movie footage and I want to slice it and dice it and assemble it into a comedy and you want to slice it and dice it and assemble it into a drama and we're all using different scenes, that's completely fine. We can do that. But if mm-hmm. we're taking a scientific paper on cancer treatment and you want to slice it and dice it one way and I slice it and dice it another, that's not going to work so well. If we're trying to, I don't know, build a bridge and I want to reinterpret the math one way and you reinterpret somewhere else and we're building the same bridge, one of us is going to collapse. That's not going to happen. That's not going to work. And so what we end up with is a situation where um, um, the narratives are no longer tethered to the world, right? What gets socially legitimized doesn't need to be tethered to the world. It needs to be the best story. And what you have is an engine now with social media and everything else that's so overdriven, it's so pushed to the brink that what you're ending up with is a situation where the truth is no longer the thing which people hold on until it's absolutely catastrophic and they can absolutely no longer ignore it. Yeah. It's, 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 and we're going to have to, it looks like in some respect, we can pull back from this now, not pull back. There is no way to pull back. The only way out is through. We can't undo. So here's the, so here's another thing. Okay. So, I need I need I need a little bit of leeway here, okay? Because we're gonna build something, okay? Okay. When I say I continuously say that we're in postmodernism, people will be like, "Well, what's wrong?" It's like we're just building narratives. Yeah, but that's what humans always do. What we've done now, the part of the reason for the cynicism is that we we tend to, um, we look at everyone and say, "Well, what's your angle? What are you trying to do? How are you trying to benefit yourself?" You know. Whose knowledge? Who decided that it was knowledge? What gave them the power to decide that knowledge? Who says that they're correct? Um, when someone's, I mean, even concepts such as objectivity are now under question, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the question for me is not, are we going to go through this? The question is that we, the answer is that we are. The question is, how much is, go- is going to be damaged in the process? That's the question for me. There is, reality wins in the end, and reality bats yeah. last. I'm a very big fan of saying that reality is the thing that, y- that you run into when your beliefs are wrong. And because reality is the thing that you run into when your beliefs are wrong, um, it does in some way catch up. But the problem is that if all you have is narratives, then you can always tell yourself a story about why things went wrong in a way that way that it, that that avoids that reality. For example, hmm. the collapse of the Soviet Union. Well, that was because of the dirty capitalists playing their tricks on us, and the communism was actually working. But but the the neoliberal agenda did this, that, and the other thing, and you just ignore the fact that man, you went bankrupt because your system doesn't work, mm-hmm. right? There is always a way, um, very often, 
a bad system will create worse conditions, which will then people end up with people justifying the use of more of the bad system. The cure didn't work, so we need to have more cure. The problem is that we didn't yeah. go deep enough. The problem yeah. is that we didn't dive in enough. And so yeah. my, my point is that as we continue to do this, as we continue to fragment, as we continue to have um, different operant narratives about what the truth is and no way to socially legitimate what the the fact of a matter is we are mm-hmm. and we have not just that but in the cases where there are some agreed upon facts the salience of those facts the relevance of those facts how they ought to be used is not agreed upon either we're, we're continuing to fragment we don't disappear entirely because it would be impossible for us to have infinite fragmentation to the point where nobody talks to anyone else. That would be impossible. You couldn't have it so that nobody spoke to anyone. That wouldn't work. You couldn't have infinite fragmentation. It's yeah. just that we're having – there are no stable narratives. The, How do you – I, I just don't I, don't – I don't agree with you. There's, there are stable it's, narratives. It's It's – Every narrative that's coming up is, gets deconstructed almost immediately. Well, yeah, but it gets deconstructed in a thought experiment on social media, but eventually it pans out. Eventually it pans out. Like the, Carl, the Kyle Rittenhouse, that, that's a really good example of this. Those two narratives will persist. There will always be people accusing him of being a white supremacist, you know, out there just to shoot people. And then there'll be people who actually <laughs> looked at what happened. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm part of that tribe. <laughs> but those narratives will continue to persist. There's always going to be a threshold where the fragmentation can no longer sustain itself, and people will go to tribalism. Tribalism is a way to defend us from absolute nihilism because it feeds us better than nihilism. People don't have the intellectual capacity to be infinitely cynical and they don't yes. have the they don't have the the lack of heart to to not that's get right. lonely out there. So they they glom yes. back together. That's that, that's okay, so that's there's I there's, there's some of what you said there that's 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 true is that yeah, we can't it's very difficult to be infinitely nihilistic and infinitely cynical. That's really tough. Most people don't have that. And that leads to despair. The problem is that anytime you try to, there are no narratives that catch for all of society, and there is no unifying thread. I think that it's there all, doesn't have to be a unifying all, thread. It's but it's, there can be enough threads to make a stable carpet. Mm, no, there's no organizing principle. Yeah, That's there is the an organizing. It's it's human there's, belief, it, and, it's, and it, it's, and it, wait, it, comes, it wait, collapses wait, into de- uh, desire. Right now in America, you have two groups, or more than two groups. You have multiple tribes, and they're all engaged in a sort of narrative warfare with each other. And they just deconstruct each other endlessly. Twitter is an, in, is an endless deconstruction machine of people pulling out, reframing, redescribing along their narrative lines. And in all of this, the truth is completely to is is completely crushed under narrative, is it though? or is it just constantly processed? Oh no, it's crushed. There's the 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 ability. How can I put this? It's the destabilization of truth. It's not there isn't a common truth thread that's being constantly worked on. It's that 
every every claim to truth is treated as a claim to power and then having that internal power of it deconstructed. This is what but goes do, on on Twitter. Do you do that? Day. Do you do that on Twitter? Oh. Is that your MO? Is that what you is that the sum total of what you do in, in on Twitter? To de- is to deconstruct? Yeah. No. I'm not Okay, a then then Twitter isn't all all that. There are people who I are not say, doing that on Twitter. I would say, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm speaking in in broad terms, right? Um, but I, I I would stand by my claim insofar as as social media, everything, th- whatever the truth happens. I mean, and this is part of Baudrillard's point. I mean, Baudrillard, I think ultimately that his view was wrong, but he did have an observation that we could make use of. Uh, he tells a story of a Borges fable where he says, you, he, there's a a map that is expansive and touches the world at every point, and that the world rots away underneath of the of the thing that's constructed over top. So he says there's a structure that's erected over top of the reality, and the reality rots away. The reality is lost. Um, I don't think that's what happened, but I do think that that people are thinking in terms of their narrative that comes from their tribe, and yeah. that the the truth is is slowly being lost underneath and that the methods that are being used because we have to think of this in terms of the methods right um the methods of of deconstruction and of power analysis and of these various things that are are operating here um lead us to a situation where somebody like donald trump can say something that's absolutely true and you're just saying that because, and you're just trying to do this, and what are you trying to do? And you're covering up for that, and what about this? And it's just, it just ends up in a situation where, I mean, did he, did he tell the truth or not? I mean, most fact checks now are postmodern fact checks, where they're not fact checks, they're narrative checks. We're mm-hmm. not checking to see if the fact of what the person said is actually true or not. What we're doing is checking to see how they use that fact and see if it comports with our narrative. Yeah. What, what hay are they making with that fact, and why are they making it? And it's like, at a certain point... What you're checking is not to make sure that they did, they 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 said a fact. What you're checking is to make sure that they used the fact the way you would want it to be used, and this is going on all over the place. And if you continue on like this, these two tribes bashing each other, eventually, um, you're going to end up with a situation where people are removed and moved away from truth. And I I think that is a very real concern. I I don't think hmm. um, that it heals by us retreating into our tribes because then you try to have a national story try to run a nation that way i think it pans your nation out, though your I think, nation i think nation. i think postmodernism, what you're describing this this war of narratives is in this place called the taco sphere and or or the, the thought sphere right it's on twitter it's on social media it's in it's in all various forms of media it's on my channel right now we're participating in it right now and people are, are uploading themselves out of their car wherever they're listening from this and participating in this realm of language this realm of discourse but eventually it has to touch down and it touches down through people making decisions in an economic sense, making decisions in a romantic sense, making decisions with regards to their friend groups, and eventually it pans out. It falls out. All those decisions, which are uh, they're suspended in this realm of argument, but eventually it collapses down into history. 
and then you can look at what happened, and then you make decisions on what happened, and you can only get so far away from truth or reality before you snap back. And I, I just, I, I'm, I'm principally uh, optimistic about the tools of postmodernism, about the ability to go from one narrative to another, and I live that in the the ability to do these interviews and meet people where they are, but then still have a, a coherent self, still have a, a coherent place where I do make decisions and stuff outside of that realm. This is where I push back is that is that if you if you're if you're going to say, well we're gonna write we're gonna write a history of what happened, it is really, really, really easy um, to write a history in a way or to write a history of something that is not an honest accounting of what happened. That's a simple thing to do. And to do you even one better is um, as long as you're living in postmodernism and you can interpret that history however you want, then I guess I mean the history that you write doesn't matter. I mean, are you advocating there's for a, a totality people- of understanding where there's there's one narrative, one authoritative authoritative source? We we can't no, I'm do that arguing- anymore, right. We have to have faith that other people can do things within a certain. There's wiggle room. There's wiggle room that doesn't have to do with honesty. It just has to do with the incapacity of human beings to be perfectly accurate or to interpret things things in one way. We can still converge yeah. outside of agreement or singularity. Oh. Yeah, but what I'm arguing for is not necessarily a a totalitarian singular narrative of fact that is established for all the world to see as fact. My thing is is the postmodernist method that got us here, the dissolving and deconstructive methods as applied to everything. Those are going to be hugely problematic. I'm arguing for a rigorous epistemology and a rigorous moral ethic um, and and a careful analysis that's objective or seeks objectivity rather than one that seeks to to undermine objectivity via cynicism. For example, I recently read a paper where they uh, attacked the notion of objectivity as being a product of whiteness. Mm-hmm. That, it, that this is rooted in, in white ideals of truth and for the benefit of white people. And this, this goes along with other um, work which has problematized science and said that science is a white Western male way of knowing. Um, this, is, this is wrong and clearly false for a number of reasons. One, I mean, I live in Canada if you took every non-white person out of our um, medical industry, the whole thing would collapse. The same mm. is true with our science industry. So the idea that science is a purely white thing is wrong. But that narrative can be used to rip apart things. And then when you say, oh, well, we've ripped that apart now, and things are getting worse, uh, this is just more insidious forms of patriarchy. We better deconstruct those, and then we deconstruct those, and all of a sudden you've torn everything to pieces now you can say well yeah the world will catch up yeah and and the world catches up how that gets cashed out in not having enough doctors and not having effective medicine that's mm-hmm. how that gets cashed out mm-hmm. and then the narrative around the less effective things is why are things getting less effective well it's more racism so we just keep applying and keep applying and keep applying and keep applying until the society is decrepit and broken that to me would be where reality catches up but i don't want real i don't want to get how can i say this 
I want to know where to make my turn before I crash into reality's walls. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I don't think crashing into everything is the right way to do it. I think we can we can use rigorous epistemological methods to set things up and still leave ourselves a broad track mm. of where we're going without having to crash into everything first. <laughs> I think what's happening right now, <clears throat> and I think what's happening right now is we are set in. There's a certain segment of the population, a large segment of the population that is on crash mode. I mean, I posted the thing earlier of mm. of uh, the woman who was in the in the in the church and affirmed her child or yeah. had her child who was three affirm that they are a girl. I just want to tell them that I'm a girl. Okay, you can tell them that. Okay. Phoenix would like you to know that she's a girl and she prefers she and her pronouns. May you be well, safe, and whole. We honor you exactly as you are. And I just posted, I think it is today, yeah, that the woman came up and was like, the boy's seven now, and, and she said, no, that's that's wrong. That's not that's not right. He's a boy. I, I don't know what was going on there. We shouldn't have done that. That was bad, right? She's pulled her son back from the brink in plenty of time. A lot of people don't do that, and I think that they they go all in, and and they don't realize until it's way too late. And a lot of times the lesson isn't learned, and a lot of times by the time the lesson is learned, the damage can be catastrophic, and that's what I'm worried about. Part of what I like to tell people is that I say we are living in postmodern times, and Donald Trump is its first and defining president. <laughs> That likes to bother people a little bit. People say, why? And I say, because Donald Trump is the first president who explicitly did his presidency according to narrative warfare. And it's the deconstruction. I mean, there's a video of Donald Trump saying, you know, I could be, he's, how does he do? He says, look, I could be presidential. Hello, my fellow Americans. He goes, but you'd be bored. You'd be bored. You wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want that. No, no. You're not here for that. And what's he doing? He's deconstructing the norms of the behavior of a president. I mean, even Steve Bannon got up at CPAC and said, well, that, what, what are they after? The deconstruction of the administrative state, right? I mean, this – So, but, but Donald Trump is not reading French philosophy and thinking, oh, it's power knowledge. That's not what Trump is doing. Trump is not yeah. saying, look, we need to have you know, the power knowledge and the, the, you know, the deconstruction of the literary text. He's not reading Derrida. That's not – that's not what Trump is doing. What Trump is doing is Trump had noticed that there were certain, from being on The Apprentice, effective narrative techniques. He understood the way that narratives were functioning, and he knew that when it came to politics, that things are fought on the ground of narrative. But they're not hey, done just, according to narrative. Eventually, the narrative dust will settle, and we'll see what he actually did to America well, with trade deals, with empowering oh, different communities. And right? the I reality will, of what he did isn't as extreme as his personality oh, at well, all. I would, I would say, I would say, the reality of what Donald Trump did. Well, we can. Well, Give, give me a second here. Donald Trump understands that we were already in postmodernism. 
we've we've been headed towards and diving into postmodernism for a while. It's been here for a while, but he's the first postmodern president. Post the postmodern epoch has been here for for quite some time. The age of narratives has been here for a long time, right? What Donald Trump did is to is just to lean into that and say, well, we're going to fight narrative warfare. So he tells whatever the best narrative is, and people say, well, Donald Trump lies. And I'm just like, Donald Trump is telling stories, just like Barack Obama is telling stories. Is is some is Donald Trump lying sometimes? Yes. Does Donald Trump lie? Yes. Does Obama lie? Yes. I mean, there's a there is there was a a press conference that happened during Ronald Reagan's presidency in 1987, where he gets on TV and he says, I got on here and I told the American people such and so, and that was not true. That kind of, of honesty, we would never see in a politician today. It would never have been required. It would never have been asked for. Now, that's not to say that Ronald Reagan didn't lie. I, I don't know his presidency well enough to know. But I know that he lied at least one time and got and, and came right out and said it. Eisenhower, when he was president, told a lie about a plane that had been downed in the Soviet Union. And then the Soviets pulled the plane out and pointed out that he was lying. And Eisenhower was nearly tempted to resign mm-hmm. because he had been caught lying and and it it to him that was unbelievable it was unconscionable for him that he'd been caught lying he didn't he he told the lie to uh um because of of the import of what had happened and getting caught and how disastrous that would have been to foreign policy but when the russians caught him he was just humiliated and embarrassed because lying still mattered Mm -hmm. lying was important now we expect our politicians to lie. And because we expect our politicians to lie, that's an expectation we have. I mean, what's the old adage that we say politicians are like diapers, they need to be changed often for the same reasons, right? We mm-hmm. tell ourselves these jokes because we've accepted it, and now we're just looking at what narrative are they supporting, what narrative are they pu- pushing out. We're no longer asking and but demanding, we- in fact, that that they tell us the truth and that we operate according to debating whether or not the truth is a good thing and what actually went on. That's why we have the narrative dust. And you can say, well, the narrative dust will settle, yes, but the decisions that we're making here and now are all being made in the narrative fog. And because all the decisions that we're making here and now today are being made in, in in under the cover of the fog of narrative, because it's which would be a little bit like the fog of war because we're doing it all within the fog of narrative. Um, making decisions according to truth is going to be real, real hard, if not impossible. So we're going to see what Trump did, possibly, if the people who are affected by it are able to get that narrative out. And if the people who can popularize that narrative are able to tell it, we might be able to have a story. But again, I mean, there's a there's books out talking about how everything that Trump is involved with is a complete failure, and then there's books talking about how everything that Trump is involved with is wonderful, and we're going to end up with a narrative warfare about that. It will be consistently narrative narrative warfare. There won't be like we have – we can look back and we have 
a story about what Abraham Lincoln did, and then within that there is debates about certain things, right? That's well, not what enough time happen. passes. That's what's going to happen. I mean, when was Mount Rushmore built? What was it in the fifties or something like this? I mean, so it took ninety years for you know for those men to be be put on 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 that level of a pedestal. I don't know that necessarily in ninety years there's going to be a truth telling about Trump. I mean. I, I think I just think that we're so caught up and raptured that all the decision, even if you could have an accurate account, historical accounting of the Trump presidency, it will be so far downstream that the lessons learned will, I don't want to say be too late, but they won't have any import and we'll still be making our decisions right now in the narrative fog. I so think, I just I think that the the, the ability so me, to be in a post singular narrative realm is not entirely nihilistic. It it, it demands plasticity oh, of mind, and it okay. demands that there is some sort of uh, allowance for wiggle room in these different interpretations. Now, okay. we are in a in a moment of in, of increasing crisis, that's true, but that can only sustain itself so long. Okay. So and it's me... not going to snap into a totality of a singular narrative. It's ne- we're never going to go back to the Christian uh Christian dome or anything like that. We're always going to be in this uh d- diversity of 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 ethnicity and of society and of individuality. So, let me let me toss this out here for you then. There are certain ways in which you can have certain areas where you can have multiple narratives. I think art is one of those ways. That's one. Art is one of the areas in which you can have multiple narratives. Multiple interpretations of a painting, multiple interpretations of a poem. The book has different meaning to me than it does to you. That works. Where it doesn't work is when it comes to describing the world accurately in terms of of its properties and, and along its causal joints, right? If you want to describe the physical world along its causal joints so that you can understand how it interlocks and works together, if you're engaged in a scientific project, that's not going to work. You can't have different narratives about the tensile strength of steel and then still expect to be able to build bridges, that isn't going to function well. That's not going to work. You can't do that. I, I, th- I, in fact, think it is the case where we're going to live with competing visions of what the good is, with competing visions of how we should do life, with competing visions for, for culture, um, various types of music, movies, and art that are continuously um, putting forth people speaking forth their being in 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 various ways from um a whole a whole milieu of different perspectives on what it means to be human on the value of life on who god is on if god exists on what is morality i i i believe that we're going to be living in that But I also think that there needs to be an anchoring of all of those things to the truth, to a truth that describes the world in the way that it really is. Because 
I think that we're living in a world where we've developed technology and massive institutions. It's There's one kind of skill and rigor that's required to ride a bicycle. It's an entirely different level of rigor and skill and care that's required to fly an F-15. Those are two completely different things. Those are two different levels of understanding and knowledge that's required and care and accuracy that are required. And so, although I do think, yes, there can be multiple narratives for what is good, multiple narratives for for morality, there does need to be um, a core there does need to be – they do need to be tethered to the truth. Now, you can, if you want, say, well, I'm going to take those truths and I'm going to talk about what that truth means to me, what I think is valuable, what is good. There can be discussion around that, but you still need to be tethered to truth because at the level of technological advancement we have, crashing is not like crashing a bike. Mm-hmm. Crashing an airplane is not like crashing a bicycle, right? And and we're in an airplane, and so I can allow for different modes of art. I can allow for different religions and different religious contexts and different beliefs and different understandings of how to make make meaning out of the world. But when when you are attempting to deconstruct the world. Um, which is what's going on in the institutions right now, when people are, are saying that the very notions of objectivity and truth that we rely on are inherently white supremacist, when, when there's a cynicism that every pushback against every one of the, the critical theories is based in self-interest, that's not going to work because that's going to end up with the situation where everything gets torn apart. And the very mechanisms we have for finding the capital T truth as opposed to just social legitimation, those are going to break apart and they're going to be I, lost. See, I, I, just, I think that social legitimiz- uh, legitimation, yeah. that is going to be a, a fail-safe. I think that the ideas can only go so far because they are ridiculous and that the work of pointing them out is still ongoing, but it's nothing new and and it continues apace, right? And as these things are ascendant, I think that with Trump, insofar as he is no longer in office, is no longer in office, there will be a chilling effect on the rabid uh, left, right, and center wokeness, uh, just spraying that venom everywhere. They will no longer have the cover of a large portion of at least my country's, uh, you know, whether or not manipulated hatred of that man or disgust of that man. They will no longer be able to hide behind a massive dislike of Trump. And there will be internecine conflict within the Democratic Party as the different factions in that take a look around and are no longer united against a common enemy. Without that, 
I don't think that these ideas of uh, objectivity being white supremacist will go that much further. I think that there will be more anti-racist stuff going on, but it doesn't actually make sense. It makes people feel horrible about themselves and each other, and yep. it cannot sustain itself. It, yeah. Once once it once it goes critical, like what you have at Evergreen, and it won't always go critical like it happened at Evergreen, but eventually it does go critical or it just runs itself out. I, I have... I have faith in human beings, their aesthetic and their ethical sense of things. And the social legitimization or the social capital that these big institutions are expending on stupid fucking ideas will yes. eventually marginalize themselves and new media will will rise. However, we do still have that hegemony of Twitter, Facebook, uh, New York Times, all these people enforcing a narrative that is very explicit in this uh, in this past election, where they came down very hard in favor of, of Biden, and were very explicit on what they controlled with the narrative. So we do have more narrative uh, battles to fight, but that is against a bigger mechanism, that hegemonic uh, mechanism of whatever globalist thing. I don't want to name it because there is a lot of conspiracy baggage around that. But Right. I think you're right that this can't keep going, that it's going to crash. And I've said, I think a couple of times, that, that it's the question is not if it crashes, the question is how much damage does it do? I also agree that at some point, people are going to have had enough. People are going to get sick of it. And they're going to say no more. Postmodernism is now in the light of day. I think in the Biden administration, you're going to see, you're going to see the two groups who are, because there's, as, as I see it, there's two groups that, that are kind of, still in the establishmentarian sense kind of fighting it out there's the the old neoliberal consensus of the people who the absolute free trade neoliberals kind of quasi libertarians um uh these are the people who would support nafta kind T of tp or tpp yeah yeah tpp this is you know the clinton consensus the clinton people um some of the old Obama bros, as they get called sometimes, mm. and then th the wokists. And the, the neoliberals have been using the wokists as, as cover, but I don't think that that can be sustained for them I think so. much longer. Well, my, my thinking is that everyone tries to use postmodernism to dissolve the thing that is in their way so they can erect their own thing. They use postmodernism as a bulldozer to take out anything that's in their way first. This is what Jeff Bridges was doing at Evergreen. He thought he was going to use... Um, what? Jeff is the dude. George is the president. Both are Bridges, though. Oh, George Bridges. Right. Sorry. You could edit that part out. <la> Jeff, <laughs> oh, I, I like George to drop Bridges. the dude. George Bridges does not abide. <laughs> <laughs> no. He really didn't tie that worm together. Well, he did by dissolving it. He, oh, but, but George Bridges thought he was going to be able to use the wokeness as a way to restructure the school, and it blew up in his face. I think if the woke ever get in charge of anything, that's what's going to happen. People are going to try and use this, mm -hmm. and they won't settle for it. Their ideology is that 
And you can't be complicit. That's against the rules. And yeah, so, but, but it's no longer it's no longer without Trump there. The neoliberals are going to be the first and foremost target of the woke. The left will eat itself. They they oh the Democrats are headed for a a quite severe civil war. Yeah. Um, the the so part of what has happened in and this is again a, a product of of the postmodernism is that. Um, under Obama, Obama was a transitional figure. Obama mm. could have transitioned to a new progressive liberal era, but instead, well, Obama transitioned to a postmodern era, right? Mm. I don't know if that was his intent or his goal, but that is what he in fact did. And so, my, my contention is that because I mean, it's common for conservatives to say that the the press took an eight year vacation under Obama. Yeah, they had their nice eight year vacation, hanging out on the beach, and then. Well, sort of. It's that with Obama, they were able to put their their vision forward. Their, they were following a narrative, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. their narrative was one of endlessly moving towards wokeness. And you can see this starting in like in 2012, 2013, 2014. You can see this kind of terminology starting to bubble up, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And um, they're looking at at Obama's racial reconciliatory rhetoric as as the as the nice baby steps that we can use to eventually get to the to the woke the woke uh the woke mountaintop the woke the woke heaven um uh intersectional the woke woke upichu yeah i think that that when when trump came in that was like hell on earth to them in many ways, and so, so you can see that the the, the go, moving back and forth between Trump and Obama exposes this this narrative thing that's going on, right? Mm-hmm. This narrative warfare. It's a little bit easier to see. Going from Obama to Clinton, it would have been a lot harder to see the narrative warfare, but now it's just obvious. And also with Trump making explicit, you are fake news, it's easy to see that the narrative warfare comes up, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you that it's it can't last. So here's what I think. I think that the narratives that can be used by a society where the society continues in some way that allows for flourishing – a narrative like that needs to be tied to the truth in some important way. And so I think what's going to end up having to happen is there's going to have to be a an artistic renaissance of art that is not postmodern. If you've ever seen postmodern art, jeez, it's ugly. Hate it. I hate it. Postmodern Every time art. I walk is, through a so ugly the museum the, uh, by the time i get the post the intentionally like, poorly drawn aesthetic yeah the intentionally poorly drawn aesthetic so that it can it can so that the political message is 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 right there right <laughs> that that is intentional because we don't want to distract from the be- we don't want the beauty to distract from the message right mm-hmm. and so the, the, the uh, also that it, it's always in the meta of 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 having to play around with why you tape a banana to a wall because we're always challenging the conventions of art. We're not building something yeah. beautiful. We're not making something wonderful. We're not showing something lovely, right? And then it takes all the most cynical ideas so that as soon as you point out 
you know, a beautiful family. Someone's got to come along and find, you know, point out to a single 55-year-old person and say, see, they're just as fulfilled. And you kind of go, why are you doing, oh, you want to tear down the, the idea, the elevation of family structure you're trying to tear it down again. Well, the only way to rebuild that is to re-elevate it, right? When someone tries to make the church ugly, the solution is not to per- persecute them. The solution is to build stained glass windows. Yeah. We need to, to – it's the artistic beauty that we need to start bringing back. The conservatives need to not worry so much about trying to argue with Jim Acosta. The people – those of us who are conservative now, we are living in a realignment. What is to be conservative now, the old – you know, the old three-legged stool of conservatism, of national security, social conservatism, and fiscal responsibility is dead. You're conserving now a society, my friends. You are trying to conserve a civilization. You're not trying to conserve a particular set of conservative policy prescriptions so that you can go back to not caring about politics and living in your society, which you're like. You're... you're your unified American society, because your unified American society is gone right now, my friends. It is fragmented in the dust and smoke of narrative warfare, <laughs> and you are not going to be able to do that. So what do you have to do? You have to pull back from that. The attack ads on liberals and the intra-liberal conservative fighting and say, man, we really, really blasted each other. And in so doing, we opened up the door for all the cynicism. We paved the way for the postmodern mindset. And you have to do is say, hey, maybe that needs to end. Maybe we need to give up our goal of of another tax cut. Hey, maybe absolutely unfettered markets do lead to giant, enormous corporations that have way too much power who can then turn around and enforce narratives to keep us quiet when we're trying to defend our civilization. Hmm. Maybe that wasn't such a good thing. And so maybe, maybe these, the conservatives have to, have to back off of some things and, and, and grab on to the liberals and say, the new conservatism is not that old stool. The new conservatism is for the people. It is going to be populist. It is going to be civic-minded. It's going to be focused around truth. The narrowness and the anchor will be provided by truth. And then it will create a the possibility of a sort of um, cultural pluralism nested within a civic a civic nationalism that can that can survive it's going to be multi-ethnic it's going to be built around around the rediscovery and the of the importance and the value of family rather than than taking the most cynical view as was it betty friedman said that a, a, a woman staying in the home over the stove is, is like a, a prisoner, that's going to be gone. That cynicism that, that motherhood is just a construction of patriarchy to hold women down and that fatherhood is just a, is just a vision of toxic masculinity, that's going to go. It's nonsense. 
and we're going to have to start building. And the conservatives are going to have to start making nice and realizing that they desperately, desperately need liberals. Why do they, they need liberals? What will liberals bring to the conservatives that they can't get from their tradition or their? Uh, well, the the neo the we'll call them the establishment conservatives need the establishment liberals, and the establishment liberals need the establishment conservatives. Why? Because it's the gas pedal and the brake of the new vehicle to be able to build the society. Hmm. That's why. The conservatives will be the ones who say, careful. And it's the liberals that like to dash into the future. It's not about the conservative coalition of national security and and social conservatism and, and fiscal responsibility. And it's not about the old liberal consensus of of unions and you know um um ethnic minorities and you know how their coalition fits together those those coalitions have been dissolved by the postmodern mindset no 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 it's something new it's it's to say to the liberals the conservatives need to look at the liberals and say we need your openness and your ability to create, and you need our, our, the gravity of our being tethered to the world, to prevent this whole thing. We need the engine of liberalism, or the engine of the, of the progressive liberals to move forward, and to create art and to see the possibility. But they need the conservatives to tap the brakes when we're going to crash. And so these two groups need each other. And they're going to have to learn to get along. And the old, the, the neoconservative former establishment is going to have to step back and recognize that there's no appetite for that politics, and indeed it would be poisonous at this moment to engage in it. The internecine uh, narrative conflict. The people who think that we need Bush's third term need to step aside. The people who want to resurrect Reaganism need to stop. It's not going to happen. We need to. You need to back off and allow a new vision of conservatism to come forward. I think. I think the the new vision of conservatism um, is underway, and the new vision of liberalism is underway. I think that a lot of people were booted out uh, or or migrated out of uh, the left. You know, the walk away movement is a very real movement. Oh Where yeah. Those people go. They don't all want to go to the right. There is a center. And the center needs to be held uh, in high esteem by those who do want to cement a power structure that, that, that sustains, that gets them what they want, but also sustains and feeds that, that center, um, where the center can play out the, what it needs to play out. I think that what needs to happen is a spirit of conciliation and of cooperation, yeah. like you just described, rise up, and then somebody needs to embody that. That is the next political leader that we need, is somebody to embody that. And uh, for all of its faults and um, 
sorry to say this silliness, Brett Weinstein was on to something with his Unity 2020, just in a in a spiritual way or in an aesthetic way. He was trying to search for uh, some sort of conciliation, some sort of uh, place where that spirit of left, right, and center are embodied in a, you know, but it's got to be charismatic. It's got to be passionate. It's got to be somebody who can be uh, like Trump was not presidential. Somebody's got to be able to embody the, you know, the dramatis persona of that. And so if we can establish that spirit and that spirit cannot be defined by what it is against, anti-wokeness is something that we ourselves will need to give up at least our, at least aesthetically and start to do inroads, start to leave, p- lead people away from being against wokeness into something more fun. That's what needs to happen because mm-hmm. because anti wokeness yes. itself is creating yes. another tribal warfare where you have the anti anti woke people, and it, it's just it's it's falling apart. It's already falling apart. It's That's already right. falling apart. So we need what's to move on. What my what's, vision? What's what's no no no? What's your vision? Without vision, the people perish. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think. I think Brett Weinstein was right. He was just right too soon. He was right ahead of his time. He's absolutely correct. And I think that what's going to end up happening is that we're going to need that. And anti-wokeness in and of itself and agreeing that wokeness is bad is a starting point for is a necessary starting point. That's the starting point of there's the monster. What do we do about it? Studying the various aspects of the monster is important and understanding the monster is important, but just having a competition about who hates the monster the most or who's <laughs> hating the monster correctly or, or, what's or the artistically, best, what's the best way to hate the monster is not yeah. going to be able to create beauty. Yeah. No, you have no, to no. erect something that can be, be better than the monster. That's I was complaining pop- the other day about um, being tired of of, of the pol- political game and and trying. I was just uh, discoursing out loud about the direction of of my work on this channel and uh, despairing that I don't want to be enmeshed in politics forever. And somebody said, uh, "You're fine." Um, art and morality, or politics, are downstream from art and morality. Or, or spirituality, or religion, and you know, religion yeah. is something e- eternal, and politics are something in, in that are particularly just the, about the present, and, and that, that's from Paul Vanderclay. So there's a lot more <laughs> room and work to, to do beyond, and, and I still disagree with you that, that postmodernism is completely evil. I think that there's a, a Jedi as well as a Sith version of postmodernism, um, but. Be, there's something beyond the deconstruction of the deconstructivists. And and it's already time, the time is passing for us to map out that territory. Oh, I think the thing, the postmodernism, when I say postmodernism, I'm always referring to the Derrida Foucault alloy. The thing that comes, that follows modernism, which is good, I don't want to call postmodernism. I want to give it a new name. Okay. Not we need to have, modernism, please. We had, Not we had, we have please. the the bronze era, the platinum era, um, adamantine era. <laughs> well, it's kind of the silicone era. Oh. And the thing 
about the silicone era, which is good, is the easy availability of information, the ease within which we can avail ourselves of the insight of other cultures, ease of which cultures can agree or disagree and discuss and be involved with each other. That's all good. The ability for us to allow disagreement, the willingness for us to live amongst competing narratives or in the knowledge that there are other narratives is good. That there are other ways of seeing the world is good. For us to live in a world where we understand that there are different worldviews, that's fine. That's part of the Silicon era. That's part of, of, of what we're living in. But I think that the other thing that we can learn from the Silicon era, which hasn't quite translated, is that it is good for us to have our little pockets of, of different meaning and of different value. And so, if there wants to be, if a community wants to exist and to radiate its vision of beauty to the world, it can do that. That's a good thing. We should be allowing that to occur. To keep in mind and be aware of the ways in which social legitimation works so that we can make sure that when we do socially legitimize things, that it's being done for the right reasons. That's a good thing. I think that's okay. I think making sure that we're that we make institutions aware that we know what their power is and that we're watching how they wield it. I think that's a good thing. I think the ability to be able to juxtapose and collage the various art forms and styles to build new aesthetics I think is good and I think to be able to to Allow that is good. Um, so I think there are elements of this which are of the silicone era which are good. I also think the silicone era invites us to new challenges and new temptations. Um, I think anyone who's experienced phone brain from staring at your phone for uh-huh. four hours at a time knows what I'm talking about. I think the challenges of social media, of what it's like for us to be constantly feel like we're engaged in social jockeying and social maneuvering and social navigation, even when we're by ourselves at our home. I think that's new. I think that's a challenge that needs to be met. And I think there will need to be norms and values that grow up around that. I think that's important. I think we are in the infancy, well, probably the toddlerhood of the Silicon era, and that's why we're witnessing so many tantrums. Uh, but I think we can move into a more preschool and uh, then kindergarten uh, era. I think uh, we just have to manage our, our uh, willfulness and get breached or potty trained, as the Americans say. I think we are living in the postmodern age. This is the high era of postmodernism, and we're in it, man. I think when if we can get through it, we can build a a silicone age, the golden age, but we'll call it the silicone age because it's the age of, of technology. <laughs> I think we can build that. And I think we can build that where we take the Enlightenment era principles 
and the things that we and we buttress them with what was learned from the failures of postmodernity and an enlightenment liberalism that that realizes what its weaknesses were because of the attack of postmodernity a reinforced liberalism a reinforced enlightenment liberalism um Anchored to values of truth, but also of, uh, I guess, those classical, so-called classical liberal values. Yeah, but buttressed by uh, an awareness of the ways in which, um, um, a, an awareness of the criticisms of postmodernism and that deals with them, that accounts for those. That, that sets the nice, the... The that sets up an ability to be able to take someone like Brett and Heather Weinstein, who are very, very far left, almost socialists, very nearly, um, and somebody like me who would be, I mean, at least in Canada, I'm a conservative. People like me and Brett can get together with common principles to build the the Silicon Age, and then. And then once that's established, um, I think I think that sets the stage for a renaissance. Actually, let me revise that. I think that the renaissance needs to happen first before a vision of a world where me and Brett are on the same team politically is realized in a greater culture. I'm ready to do that now. Like, yeah, I think we're on the precipice. I, I do think we're on the precipice. Uh, it, it might take f- five or ten years, but I think we're on yeah. the precipice of a renaissance. I think that the the fallowness of media, the destitution of our institutions of art and culture, yep. uh, are just they're they're at an apogee. They're at the, the a nadir, and it just it it cannot hold. Their last gasp was hating the previous insofar as he's the previous president of the United States, and pushing these absolutely absurd claims uh, based on whiteness and and based on absolutely insane gender ideology that is already meeting with reality. And the fruits of that horrible ideology are uh, ingrained in the bodies of our youth already. And droves of them are standing up and speaking out against that. And, And it just... I think that there's hope. I think that there's no reason to despair. I think there's there's ample room to laugh at the nihilism and the cynicism. Yeah. And in that laughter, uh, attract and magnetize people towards building something I beautiful. Mean, the, the comedians are already doing it. The comedians are on board. <laughs> and I think that the absurdist gender ideology, yeah, that's gonna we're gonna be stuck with that for a little bit. But I think people are already starting to kind of go. Mm, no no people were giving it the benefit of the doubt for a while be like okay yeah yeah but now that people are seeing what it actually is and the more people i see who are fully understanding of what that that ideology and that worldview entails the more people i see the more people will reject it and so i ultimately think that that yes we we have to recognize that we are in the postmodern era now. Everything dissolves, but reality is the thing that you're running into when your beliefs are false, 
And because reality is the thing that you run into when your beliefs are false, this is going to run aground somehow. And so those of us who have seen it have to, A, be willing to explain to people yeah. what you do, what this postmodernism is, how this stuff functions, and then be able to kick back at it. We have to be able to do that. We have to be able to push back and kick back at it. Uh, show people how it works, show people why it fails, show people why it's flawed, and then we can start giving them an alternative vision in the form of a renaissance, which leads us into a new silicone age. That's what we yeah, would like, into yeah. a new age of 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 a, of a technology-infused civic nationalism that is not a technocracy. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of work to do. I just, I'm already, I'm bored of being anti-woke. And I want to do something better. <laughs> Honestly, good. Honestly. Honestly, that's good. I, I want to make it known to people what the wokeness is. Because m- my thing is I think that wokeness is extremely vulnerable. And it's, it's, it's Achilles heels that it can be understood. Mm. That's its weakness. And laughed at. Once, once people understand it and they see how hollow it is. Yeah. And see how how utterly nihilistic and broken it is. You can get rid of it. It goes away. It dies slowly, but it dies. You can kill it. Yeah. But then you need to have something in its place. And so I think, I think, at some point we have to start giving voice to the artists and the musicians who are espousing values of family and joy and love and and beauty that accept the beauty and the diversity that exists in the male and female bimodal nature of human beings that the romance is not bad that fatherhood is not toxic that motherhood is not a result of patriarchy that families are beautiful that does not elevate i say this as a single person that does not elevate singlehood to the level of family, but at the same time does not denigrate single people. Uh, that necessary interpretation of every elevation as a denigration needs to go away. That's one of the postmodern tricks that is bullshit. Yeah, yeah. It's family is beautiful. That doesn't make me less of a person. And so we can do all of this and we can we can look forward to something that is that is that is greater. And we can do that without having to in the process of having our family lives intertwined with our social and community lives and having that embedded in our civic nationalist body politic, I guess you could say. Hmm. We can do all of that without having to indulge in any sort of epistemological or narrative relativism, right? We are allowed to bring back standards and we are allowed to bring back the elevation of certain things and we are allowed to bring back truth and aspiration and we're allowed to hold up things as an ideal a tolerant and stable normativity yeah we'll call it a a broad orthodoxy a large (laughs) orthodoxy what about what about the bros though a a brothodoxy is that could that be the new patriarchy brothodoxy brothodoxy Um, we could have a brothel in there too (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No brothels. Uh, yeah, I just think 
I just think we could have a beautiful orthodoxy. There we go. I have to go. My cat is screaming. Vocal. I'm sorry to disappoint you with this unexpected conversation. You haven't disappointed me at all. (laughs) I don't have any. I don't have any right to determine how the conversation goes. Okay. Thanks for pushing the conversation further. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Let's do it again. I'll talk soon. Okay. Got a question for you though before yeah sign off. Well, let me let me open the door. Oh, you couldn't hear me. Oh, is the kitty? Hello, kitty. Buddy, he's going crazy. Aw, that's a boy. Oh yeah, he's a bro. He goes outside and he really needs affection. He really needs it. He needs like a really hard rub down every like six hours. Aw, orange cats are almost always male. That's great. Really? Really? Yeah. Yeah. I used to have one. I think like 80%. Sounds anecdotal, dude. What? 80%? Are you serious? Wow, that's yeah. a lot. That's what I heard. So, this conversation went in an entirely different direction. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.